Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we're questing with Hero Cosmetics founder and CEO Ju Ryu, who recently sold her business for $630 million after bootstrapping it from zero after just five years. A wise singer once said, I need a hero, and I think they were talking about you. In light of mounting retail and D2C ecosystem challenges combined with the worst economy modern marketers have ever seen, Ju's exit represents a massive win for the health and beauty space, as well as for all entrepreneurs out there with a dream. This podcast goes deep on reversing the D2C playbook with Amazon first, retail second, and D2C last, building for saleability from day one. You'll hear why Ju doesn't want to be considered considered a girl boss and how her life has changed since seeing all those zeros hit her bank account. Are you holding out for a hero who is both fresh from the fight, larger than life? Listen no further. Ju Ryu will be here till the morning light. On with the show. The founder story is important. It gives the brand more like soul and history, but when you are the brand, it actually increases the risk for the actual products and the brand that you are marketing. You do need to advocate for your brand and really tell the story, but you're not gonna be the face of the brand forever and the economics probably change. We've seen some cases where the founder does become the brand, which I think increases the risk. When I see brands so intertwined with one person, I just question the longevity of that brand because what happens if that person goes away? Does the business suffer? I just prefer to share the story and tell the story, but I don't want to be the brand. Are you ready to grow your audience and revenue? Send in Blue is a multi-channel marketing platform that empowers businesses to create stronger customer relationships. Create personalized emails, captivating SMS campaigns, chat, custom landing pages, quick sign-up forms, automated workflows, and more instantly. Curious to learn more? Sign up today at sendinblue.com forward slash DTC and enter promo code DTC to get one month free on a premium plan. Do it all with Sendinblue. Ju, welcome to the D2C podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, you co-founded Hero Cosmetics in 2017, but didn't follow what was considered at that time to be the D2C playbook. Can you start us off talking a little bit about your choices to start the business and how you sort of differed from what was sort of happening in the space, in the D2C space? Yes. Well, first, thanks for having me. I know we were trying to connect for a while, so it's glad to finally sit down and chat. So we started in 2017, and back then that was, you know, it was like the era of Away and Glacier and Allbirds and a lot of those big DDC brands. And really the playbook was to raise a bunch of money, create your own DDC website off of Shopify or what have you. And really that was the business model is that, you know, you're going to go, yeah, I mean, direct to consumer via your own website. But what we did was we decided to bootstrap. So it was really important to me that the business that we build be, you know, I didn't want it to be a black hole, basically, or a money pit, basically. And so uh, I really wanted it to be a bootstrap profitable business from the very beginning. And we started selling on Amazon. So we had one SKU, we sold on Amazon, and there are a lot of reasons for that. One was I already knew that people were looking for this product on that channel. I, you know, I think just getting up to 
um, the go-to-market strategy, I think, from Amazon was really uh, fast. It was cheap and it was pretty simple. Like it didn't require a lot of money or a lot of people. And again, like where else are you going to have access to hundreds and million of millions of potential consumers because Amazon already had that marketplace built out. And so for all those reasons, we decided to start on Amazon. What was the, uh, this is probably just simple searching, but what, what was the data you had to know that the market demand was there on Amazon? Was it just other products? So there were some other similar products that were getting somewhat known. But we also, we used tools like Jungle Scout we had used. Um, and you can use those tools, like they have cool plugins where, you know, you add the plugin into your Google browser and then you go onto Amazon and like go onto any product page and it'll show you uh, the data for that SKU. So approximate searches, approximate um, kind of revenue, And so all that was really helpful in terms of getting a lay of the land, um, in terms of knowing like what the competition out there was already doing. And I knew we could do it a thousand times better. Um, And so, yeah, there was a little bit of data that we uh, armed ourselves with. And then when it comes to your category, you said there were maybe a few products you knew you could evolve the, the category, but is there an aspect of category creation with your product as well? Or it's how you've defined your category has led to it being viewed as its own sort of category creator? Yeah, I mean, this it. We are a category creator because, um, I mean, the acne patch didn't really exist in the U.S. really until we created it. There were a few products that were foreign products by foreign brands. A lot of them were Korean brands uh, that sold in the U.S. So yeah, I mean, a lot of them did sell on Amazon, but. They were never good at doing the marketing and education for the product category. And that's what we did. And that's what we continue to do. And I mean, we're like 80% of the category. We're the number one acne patch brand. And I think a lot of brands saw our success. And now, I mean, the category is getting really competitive and we see a lot of like V2 products. Uh, There are a lot of big brands out there that now have their own acne patch product. But I think what we've done is, yeah, essentially created a new category of acne treatment Because what people were using before, it was the white creams or the pink creams. And what we've done is we've really shown that this hydrocolloid acne patch is actually a much better alternative because it's less irritating, doesn't leave your skin red, and it's really effective at getting the gunk out. Um, And so, yeah, there was a lot of marketing and education that, um, that we did. You launched on Amazon, and I probably you saw some pretty immediate returns. You saw some like, okay, the market is here. The people responded well. What what about your Amazon launch did you guys just absolutely nail? And what would you have done differently maybe when you launched now? I mean, we only had one channel, so I think that helped because I think there are a lot of brands where um, they launch Amazon later. And so they have a hard time sacrificing, for example, D2C for Amazon. But because it was our only channel for a while, like a good 12 months, it was our only channel. We put all our marketing efforts towards winning on Amazon. So, you know, if we had influencers that were talking about our product, we had them linked to Amazon. We had like a splash page. Um, I mean, we had, you know, kind of a website. It was essentially a splash page uh, and the CTA went to Amazon. We started building up an email list. Everything went to Amazon. Like literally everything went to Amazon. Press went to Amazon. And and Press, they really love linking to Amazon because the conversions are really strong and they get really good affiliate revenue. So all that, I think, um, really helped us win. 
you know, we did all like the things that you're supposed to do, like optimize your images and optimize your SEO and your keywords and the sponsored ad um, product strategy and, and all that stuff. But I think really, yeah, the key thing was probably it was our only channel. And so we optimized the hell out of it and just really focused on it to win. It's a really interesting point that I hadn't heard of that PR, it eases the path of conversion and makes PR maybe, obviously you had a good story as well and great branding. I just love the idea of a patch too is just such a, in terms of solutions, in terms of people's mindsets for solutions, like a patch just makes so much more sense than a cream you rub on in a way, right? You feel like it's going to get the job done better. So Amazon was a big success, had a lot of pickup from that. What were, like once you were scaling on Amazon essentially, what was your sort of next move with the brand? So immediately we went into retail. So this is, yeah, this is why I always say that, you know, we're a kind of digitally native brand, but we did DTC all backwards because we went Amazon and then we went into retail and then we launched our official DTC website by July of 2018. So we launched on Amazon. I immediately started pitching retailers. The first one that said yes to us with was Anthropology. We launched January of 18, 2018 with an 80 store test. And then within a week, the performance was really strong. So she launched this nationally. And the press, the, the continued press that we were getting um, resulted in a lot of inbound requests from retailers too. So I remember we had an article in Into the Gloss, which was the, the content arm of Glossier at the time. I, I don't know what's going on with that site, but we had an article and immediately I, I started getting inbound emails from all sorts of retailers asking for our samples. So retail, specialty retail was a big strategy in 2018, like Goop, Neiman Marcus, Anthropology, Urban Outfitters, a lot of these retailers to give us uh, basically street cred um, and validity out there. And then we launched D2C. So again, a little bit of a flavor of how we did things kind of totally backwards, but it still ended up working for us. Very interesting. I know, so with the agency that we're partnered with at D2C Pilot House, they work actually with Unilever. And Unilever uh, came and spoke at our last event in Victoria. And they had, uh, they laid out their like whole strategy for how they launch exclusively on Amazon, actually. They're, they're kind of, maybe they're taking a little of the Jurayu playbook. Um, <laughs> but they are but they launch exclusively on Amazon because, it's, it, as you mentioned, it's got all the customers there. It's this kind of closed system that really allows you to focus on dialing in what works without having to spend a lot, without having to put ads into the social feed and things like that. So um, I, I, I like that you're writing a new playbook. So when you moved to D2C, did you have, because it feels like, you know, because you nailed the product and the brand so well, your brand story is great. You had a lot of success on Amazon. It, feel, it sounds like, you know, your first major, your first retail is anthropology. Like you, you sound like you had a really great hit with retail as well. Then when you moved to D2C, what was your launch process when you actually went to, to, to do D2C marketing? We launched um, kind of around a holiday, which is Acne Awareness Month. Um, and that is June. So I found out that June uh, is this thing called Acne Awareness Month. And what we decided to do was give out free samples on our website. And it, we got so much press around this. I, it actually was really brilliant. So um, we created our Shopify site. We actually didn't have, I can't remember if it was shoppable or not, but um, but the idea was we were just going to give out free samples. We had all these samples made. We were going to give out free samples because we knew and when people tried our product, they really, really loved it. So we tied ourselves to this kind of holiday or, yeah, I mean, like not, it's not really a holiday, but it's a, it's a month with a theme. And um, so the message was really around, you know, in honor of Acne Awareness Month, 
you know, we want to help normalize acne. And so we're giving out free samples of our Mighty Patch products throughout this month. And we got so much press. I remember like, uh, like the press just devoured um, this promotion. And so we got picked up everywhere and we got a ton of traffic and redemptions of um, the free samples. And it went on, I think, for that entire month. So it was, it's, it was really great to sort of get our name out there, to start building up our email list, to get samples in the hands of people. Uh, and then we officially la- launched, I believe, um, like our shoppable site in July. So that was a little bit about how we did that. And I think it went, yeah, really well, actually. Very cool. And then it's funny, I, I just was, you know, one of the other guys that spoke at this, uh, our last event was Sean Frank from Ridge Wallet. And I just saw that he recently did something. Oh, I love something. Sean. Sean's just a... He's so funny. He's so funny. <laughs> he's Twitter. such a force like... of nature. He's such a troll at the same time as being <laughs> yeah. so smart, uh, which I really enjoy. Um, but his his recent announcement about Mr. Beast, about that, that they that they donated $100,000 of product to Mr. Beast of duffel bags to be given to sort of homeless people, part of his mm-hmm. his sort of charity efforts there. And it's it's so smart. It's it's a, it's great for the world. It's also so smart as a marketer because he's giving a hundred thousand dollars of perceived value, but it's actually probably fifteen thousand or twenty thousand dollars of product. Um, so it has that added benefit as well. So it's cool to hear the giveaway when you, when you have such confidence in your product as as you guys do with yours. I guess that really just helps seed the user base and and the demand out there. And it's so smart that the press picks it up as well. Oh yeah. Um, I have to say, um, earned media for us was always a huge strategy. Like I, in the early days, when an article went out and linked to our page on Amazon, I saw the bump um, in sales. And so, you know, quickly, like we really doubled down on press because for us, it was a big, um, a big way to start uh, selling pretty quickly. Amazing. So you're laying the groundwork for D2C with all this great stuff. And then when when the rubber meets the road, was it meta? Was it just meta that you guys launched on first? And how did that go? Yeah, I mean, we we tried to find an agency. We didn't really have anybody that really knew how to run the ads. And so we worked with a few agencies that didn't work out. But to be fair, I don't think our business was set up to be to acquire consumers or users uh, profitably because we only had like two or three SKUs. Our AOV was really low. Our AOV at the time was like $15. And so you can imagine with like CAC and stuff, it just, you know, it was really hard to make the economics work. And so, uh, but we still kept trying. We eventually brought that role in-house so we could have someone dedicated to it um, 100% of the time and also do other things. But eventually, you know, as we started launching more SKUs, the AOV went up. And so the economics, I think, were able to work a lot better um, with Meta. But, yeah, we do a lot with Meta. Uh, We did a lot with influencers. Um, We started posting and doing work with TikTok influencers in 2019. So that was well before, like, you know, everyone started adopting TikTok. Uh, And I remember when we launched at Target, we did a, a kind of split campaign between Instagram and TikTok. Uh, and the TikTok campaign performed actually way better than the uh, Instagram campaign because the TikTok influencers back then were so cheap. Like someone with a million followers back then, this was 2019, uh, I think we paid them like $100 for, for like a post or two. I don't think you can get those prices anymore, uh, but uh, we definitely saw the results and um, really doubled down on TikTok pretty early. Very cool. I bet your conversion rates, even with $15 AOV in the beginning, I bet your conversion rates were pretty high though just for a product that is marketed as well? Or was it was it, was it a real challenge, like, out, out the gate? They were, no, I think the conversion rate was not bad. I mean, as with anything, it could have been better, but I think it was, yeah, off the bat, like, not, not too bad. 
I don't know that it was like amazing, but yeah. And then as you add more SKUs, it's it's sort of the bundling strategy that gets your AOV up, mm-hmm. essentially, or just yes. people filling their carts more. Yeah, as we introduced new SKUs, we talk a lot about how they work together. So we talk a lot about how we make products for the entire life cycle of a pimple because you use a patch when you have a pimple, and then we have all these products for after the pimple, like you have the dark spot, or you, we have uh, Rescue Balm, which helps with the um, the redness and the dryness. And, and so that really helps introduce other products to their routine or regimen, and then it helps increase the OV. Very cool. What about uh, Google? Are you guys uh, you're probably a pretty active brand, mm-hmm. owning the brand and expanding on Google? Well, I remember, you know what? One of the first things that I did when we had our website was uh, I started writing blogs for SEO. And so one of the first articles that I wrote was, what is hydrocolloid and what does it do? And I remember for a long while, like that article, like whenever you, yeah, you would type in like hydrocolloid acne patches, that was the top, one of the top uh, articles that came up in Google search results. I don't know if I haven't searched it recently, so I don't know if it still does, but yeah, sort of invested, I think the time in SEO and blog writing, we hired um, blog writers uh, to basically pump out like three to five articles a week. And so the SEO strategy, I think was yeah, important for us. These days, it's expensive to get shoppers to your store, so when they do show up, you want to make the most of each order. Thankfully, there's Aftersell Post-Purchase Upsell, the most popular upsell app on Shopify. With Aftersell, you can create targeted, on-brand post-purchase offers that maximize your AOV. Trusted by over 6,000 merchants, including hundreds of Shopify Plus stores like Brewmate, True Classic Tees, and Good American, Aftersell has generated over $50 million in revenue for their merchants. We've partnered with Aftersell to create a special offer for DTC listeners. Visit aftersell.com slash DTC for a 10% off lifetime subscription to Aftersell and white glove support for plus merchants. On top of that, there's a 30-day free trial, so there's zero risk to installing. That's aftersell.com slash DTC. One of the choices it seems like you made, I think I read it in one of your tweets, is to not sort of put yourself in front of the brand in a way. A lot of founders, I was just uh, talking with founders, loved, you know, founder stories are so critical and, and a lot of founders do really put themselves out there as the face of the brand, whether it's making TikToks or things like that. It seems like a, a bit of a conscious choice, like not to that. I feel like you're, you're stepping out a bit now and following your Twitter, like you're emerging as a thought leader sort of more these days. But I feel like you, you didn't put yourself first and foremost on the brand. Was that a conscious choice? So I have a personal philosophy on this. I mean, I do think the founder story is important because it gives the brand more like soul and a history. And I think people can relate to it. Like for me, when I go to a new brand site that I don't, um, that I'm not familiar with, one of the first things that I do is I go to the about us page. Cause I want to know like, how is this created? Who came up with the idea? Like, like it's really interesting to me. Uh, but I like my personal philosophy is that when you are the brand, it it actually increases the risk, I think, for the actual like products in the brand that you are marketing. Because I remember someone uh, so there's this brand called Sunbum and um, they created what they did was they created a mascot uh, and it's this big gorilla named Sunny or this big monkey named Sunny. And so I remember the founder was telling me, like, I did that because Sunny can never get a DUI and get in trouble and then get canceled, you know. And so in, especially in like the, um, the age that we're in, I think we've seen kind of like the, the risk and the downside of it. 
But I mean, I think it's fine because you do need to advocate for your brand and really tell the story and share the story. I think for me, it becomes a question of, um, you know, do you become the brand? Uh, and I think we've seen some cases where the founder does become the brand, which I think increases, yeah, the risk. And, and then also for me, like when I see brands so intertwined with one person, I just question like the longevity of that brand, because what happens if that person goes away for some reason? Like, does the business suffer? And so, I don't know. I just prefer to, yeah, help share the story and tell the story. But like, I just don't want to be the, you know, I don't want to be the brand. Reading your, your tweets, like, I don't know how much of this was intentional, but there's so many decisions it feels like you made about how you built this business that made it an attractive both investment and eventually acquisition target. And I feel like that's just another thing. Like with with uh, with my brand, you know, Fiverr with Fiverr sell D 2 C. I'm the podcast guy. I'm still going to keep doing podcasts potentially, but not putting yourself as the face of the brand probably makes it easier to uh, exit potentially as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like I remember I was talking to an influencer and she has her own brand, and I remember she was telling me that like, oh, I have to I have to keep posting about the brand because every time I post, our CAC actually lowers. Because there's, you know, I have my own sort of audience, built-in audience. And so, um, you know, my investors keep telling me to keep posting and to keep talking about the brand, which is fine. It's kind of, I guess, an arbitrage opportunity. But the problem that I see with that is the minute this person steps away because they sell the company, like that the CAC is going to go up. So it's an artificially lowered CAC that you get for a period of time when that person is with you. But... But again, I think, you know, once you exit to a company, you're not going to be the face of the brand forever and and the economics probably change. So anyways, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it can be well done for sure. And I think there's a lot of benefit to having a founder talk about the brand and the brand story. Um, it's just, I always like get nervous when I think the brand founder becomes a brand and then sort of like reality divorces from, I think, you know, what everyone thought. And, you know, sometimes like, a lot of founders give the appearance of having these crazy, amazing brands and companies. And then when you when you dig into the actual facts, like the businesses actually aren't that compelling. And so it's, you know, that's an example of where I think image and reality get divorced and then just, I don't know, bad things can happen. Doing some research here over the years, you, you took some funding, 16.2 million over three funding rounds. A business that is has been bootstrapped, uh, has been profitable from, sounds like, from day one or from close to it. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to take funds? Like, what what did you first decide you needed to take funds for or you wanted to take funds for? Yes, you're, we were profitable since the very beginning. Since year one, we were profitable. We didn't need the money. But we wanted to raise for like basically thought partners because we knew we wanted to exit this company at some point, but none of us had ever sold companies. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we were buttoned up and doing everything right. So we wanted people who are kind of like our business coaches helping us along the way with certain strategic decisions or, uh, and our investors actually were really amazing in the exit process itself because they knew like which bankers to contact, which lawyers to work with, how to, you know, how to craft a compelling story even like the economic points, which like a lot of them flew over my head, like they were able to negotiate and get better economics for um, for everybody. So yeah, there was a lot of benefit there. Um, really just having, you know, I mean, what I would call sort of business coaches helping you optimize everything um, for a really great outcome. One of the things I see our friend Sean tweeting about is 
D2C 1.0 companies that are struggling now, that took took a lot of money, that maybe they exited and they're struggling now, maybe they haven't exited, they're they're looking for an exit. I feel like your story is a bit of a it's the hero of the space in a lot of ways right now with this idea. And I'm sure you're like there's a lot of stories of D2C investors not getting the multiples that they're looking for, I think, for a lot of brands in this in the first couple waves of D2C. So first of all, congrats on your exit and having such a, a sm- smashing result there. Can you just talk a little bit about that process and, and, and what that was like actually exiting the business? It's a lot of work. It was really stressful and it was a lot of work. Um, it is not easy exiting a company and selling a company. So, uh, I mean, it really starts with like deciding that you want to go out and so for us, we, like, I get asked um, by other founders, like, how did you know this was the, the time to go? Like, how did you know it was now? And um, for us, we always had like the $100 million revenue mark as a kind of internal hurdle. Like, we always said, okay, once we get to $100 million, we're going to go out. So we hit that. And then, and then we started having the conversations. But uh, not just that, I think we quickly saw our category getting really, really competitive. Like, you know, we talked earlier about like, you know, how we're a category creator. And I mean, Johnson & Johnson just launched two patches under Band-Aid and Neutrogena and Viore has a patch. And like, I mean, people are coming after us. And so I think that was an um, another dynamic where we wanted to really dig in our heels and sort of defend ourselves. And it would have been, you know, it would be better with um, bigger guns. So those were like two big factors. And um, so it starts with hiring a banker. We hired Fininka Raymond James. Um, you hire the banker. There's a lot of prep work that happens because you have to like kind of download your whole story and business to them so they can best present your, your company to potential buyers. Um, you know, you do like various uh, market research studies and things like that to kind of validate the story. Then you start like meeting people kind of for private invite only meetings. So they'll select like a few, you know, key potential acquirers for um, an early look at the company. Um, This is all pre-NDA. And then, and then you sign the NDA and then you go out with like your management presentation or not your management, your um, book of materials. Um, And then from, from there, I think there are like fireside chats and then there's like a first offer. So basically at that time, everyone's sort of bidding off of the book that they saw. Um, maybe they've had like one or two conversations with you. Um, so they put in initial offers just to, sh- you know, show that they're interested. And then, you know, if it's a lot of people, then it gets whittled down. And then you do more due diligence work, which, you know, you end up usually narrowing the field even more. And then, you know, you get down to like a few parties and then you get into negotiation and then, you know, decide to sign the deal with the right person. So a little bit about the process. It took us about a year from yep. beginning to end. And then you popped the champagne. I popped a lot of champagne, yeah. <laughs> and then, I don't know if you can talk about it, but now, but you're still leading the company. Can you speak of whether you have an exit plan to leave, whether you're staying? What's it also like staying at a company that you have exited, still leading it? Yeah, I am sticking around. So, you know, Hero's only been around for five years. So I think for um, for everybody, is really important the founders stay for continuity, you know, there's a, there's a lot of institutional knowledge that we have that that we need to share. Um, also for a team, because, you know, I think it's important that uh, like we've hired so many great people over the years that we want and we want all of them to stay. So, like, it's not a really great, it's not a good signal, I think, when the three founders leave immediately. Um, and so we want everyone to stay. So we're staying. 
And um, yeah, I mean, we're just, we're figuring it out. Like I think every acquisition is different. Uh, there's no like set playbook. So right now we're in a period of getting to know each other in a deeper way, um, really getting to know like what the capabilities that Trish and White has. Uh, they're getting to know and getting up to speed on all our plans and our capabilities. Um, so I, th- I think it's going to be like that for a good bit. What are some ways that your life has changed since the exit, since the big win? Is there anything that you've that you've changed? You know, it's funny because mostly guys ask me this. So they'll be like, oh, like, how did it feel when all that money went into your account? And like, I mean, of course, it's like you celebrate. And sometimes I laugh when I look at my bank account. But like I tell people that like, you know, my life is no is not very different. Like I still, li- you know, I have the same clothes. I still live in the same apartment. I have the same lifestyle. Like I think sometimes people think like the minute the money gets into your account, you're going to like overnight, I don't know, be different, but it's not really like that. And I don't think money should really change you. I mean, I would hope it doesn't really change people. So yeah, I'd say like, you know, post exit, nothing's really different. I have more time on my hands because I'm not so tied up in the M&A transaction. Uh, I'm starting to think about like, yeah, how I want to give back, how I want to how, you know, now that I have more time, how I, wanna, how I want to use my time, how I'm going to give back to the like founder and entrepreneur um, community. So those are things that I'm still, I don't have answers to, but it's what I'm thinking about. I love it. And, you know, we're, we're two years in on, on this business and it's, um, it's been pretty successful so far. It's been great, but I feel like I've been in the, in the shit so much when it comes to just like growing it and hustling. Like I haven't like, you know, there is some success, but I haven't really allowed myself to feel it. I was just talking with a founder who has a business that's like roughly the same size as mine. And she was talking about how she's traveling. She's doing, you know, she's going to all these executive functions and, and she's sort of like, she's, she's evolved herself to the point where she's doing different, a different kind of thing that I feel like I've allowed myself to do in the stage of business that I'm at right now. So I imagine even in your business, like a lot of the changes may have been through those through the five years that you were achieving massive success potentially like maybe there maybe there were more changes like during that period than even just during this like you know symbolic event of having a a laughable bank account (laughs) yeah yeah probably i mean um you're right it's sort of like you have step step ups i think in your business and then you as a person or as a leader you have to you have to step up also you have to evolve um and so you're right it probably has been more of a a change like over time rather than something that happens overnight um so yeah i would agree with that what do you see in your future like i th- like the rush of building a company to 100 million like just that that, that sheer growth must have been quite uh, quite addictive in a way what where do you see your future do you see yourself riding this getting this as big as it can because it could still be much bigger um do you do you have that hunger to start from zero again um i mean there's still so much opportunity like we have a lot of retail partners that we're not in yet uh, we're not in international uh, we still have a ton of like product ideas. So there's, yeah, I still get excited about like the wins at Hero because there's still a ton of growth, I think, ahead of us. But at the same time, sometimes I do get that itch of like, oh, you know, what's going to be my next idea? And I, I do like the earlier stages where um, I think sometimes the wins are sweeter because you're up against so many, you know, other challenges. But I was having lunch with someone and he was like, but do you really want to, you know, want to like get back to zero? And I was like, yeah, it's kind of a good question because do I really want to, you know, go to the post office every single day mailing out influencer samples? Like, do I, you know, do I want to email 50 PR people every single day? 
But I mean, I'm sure next time, like maybe I myself won't be doing those things because I think from a resource standpoint, I'll have resources to have a bigger team. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll I'll, be, I'll get back on the saddle and start something different. I don't have an idea yet, but um, but it's still yeah appealing. What about angel investing? Or because I feel like that is something where you could you're obviously you've, you've, your story is could be the new playbook in some ways, right? I'm sure there's lots of people that'd be interested in your expertise even aside from your funds. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, I do angel invest. Um, I don't think I'm going to be an investor. I, I know there are a lot of founders that um, create their own funds and they go to the investing side. I don't think I have the muscle for that, but I love being an angel investor just to be able to support um, other founders and entrepreneurs out there. I think one thing that I, I do want to work on is really figuring out what my like thesis is or like the key, you know, having a framework through which I evaluate everything because um, now like a lot of things come across my desk. And so I, I want a better filter so I can really pick and choose the things that I think are interesting or um, the things that I really care about, like, you know, backing sort of underrepresented founders, for example. So I want to work on kind of building a tighter framework, I think. I think you've nailed it. I think you want bootstrap companies with high gross margins, with strong repurchase, with a lean, efficient team and strong growth. Easy, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I check uh, that list off and you're great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although not every company can be like that. So, but the ones that are, I, yeah, that was a thumb stop page for sure. So heading into Q4, I don't know if you, you know, do you have any commentary? Like, I just feel like we're all kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop in the economy right now. I'm hearing all the time that, you know, batting down the hatches, it's going to, you know, there's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. How, how are you viewing the economy and your category? It's, it's, it's something, it's consumable. It's something that people are not going to like give up on necessarily. People are always going to want to get rid of their pimples. How do you view the economic factors in your business? I view... Okay, so I think beauty, there's still a lot of tailwinds with beauty in general because it is that sort of affordable luxury. You know, and I think it was Leonard Lauder who coined the phrase, the lipstick effect. Um, so in recessions, beauty tends to do really well and be very resilient. I think there could be some trading down from more premium brands to, because we're priced more kind of like mastige. Like we're not as cheap as a, I don't know, clear cell, but we're not as expensive as a La Roche-Posay, for example. So we're kind of in that middle. So I think we'll be okay because I think we'll, we'll benefit maybe if there is trading down, like we'll probably benefit from some of that downflow. And then um, will we lose some people to some cheaper brands? Maybe, but, but I think what we have going for us is that people see our products as a a need to have, not a nice to have. Like it really is a necessity because when you have that pimple, like you really want it to go away and people will spend a lot of money, even in a recession, I think, to buy the products they need to have clear skin. So I think we're going to be pretty durable during um, any sort of, you know, economic headwinds. And I think we're in the right category. We have the right price point. Yeah. I think that problem solution angle will keep us strong. What? Okay, so this is like one of my canned questions, uh, and I'll bump it up. It's usually fifty thousand, but for the scale of here, I got to do at least a hundred thousand. So we're we're gonna grant you a hundred thousand dollars to be used in your. It's got to be used kind of in your marketing in let's say Q four for incremental growth. Where would you top of mind be putting a hundred thousand dollars to see the most growth with Hero? Honestly, we probably put it um, 
towards Amazon because that's the channel where we see the highest ROAS. Every time we put more money into it, like we tend to see really great returns. And there's still a lot that we like can do and want to do on that channel. Um, if not there, I'd probably, we work with this amazing agency um, for influencers. They're called Influencer Response. I'd probably give them an extra 100K to find us a really amazing influencer that we haven't partnered with that yet. Because the amazing thing about them is that they work with um, creators and influencers that actually convert and they track all the results uh, really on an ROI basis. So, um, so we've worked with some really amazing influencers where we give them $50,000, they return like, I don't know, 75 or 80. So I think that would be, be my number two. And when you say Amazon, you're referring to Amazon ads a lot. Uh, yeah. Actually yes. boosting. Yeah. Amazon yeah. ads. Like sponsored. Yeah. Sponsored products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then on the, so I was reading recently about sort of the sea change that's happened in the past few years with influencers too. Whereas previously you were looking for the biggest name people, you know, who had the biggest reach, the Kardashians and so on. But your focus on, it sounds a lot less about their individual reach and more on their capacity to tell great stories and be great creators. Is that accurate? Or is it also a real balance of their individual reach and their sort of creative style? Uh, I think it's both. And I, I think it's creators that really, like, because they tell amazing stories and they know to how to create the content, they have really amazing engagement uh, and they have people that um, have high willingness to purchase. So it's sort of all, I think, intertwined. But yeah, those are the people that we like to work with, whether they're like huge or whether they're, you know, kind of small on the smaller side. And then do you reuse that content in your own ads via whitelisting or dark posting or just reposting creator content on your own feed? We've dabbled with whitelisting. I know we saw some early, early potential with it, but I don't know that we've been able to get it, get it to work at scale. Um, I know we've, we've done like a few one-offs that worked really well and we saw a lot of yeah, potential, but, um, but I don't think we were at that point where we're like, you know, doubling down and, and really um, hitting it hard yet. Any big Q4 plans or anything like in your pipeline for Black Friday, Cyber Monday? Is that is that a big holiday in beauty or is that a big a big sales event in beauty like it is everywhere else? Yes. Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, so um, we're not on promotion very much at all, but Black Friday, Cyber Monday, that is the one time, one of the few times that we'll be having um, a sale on our website. We're also... Uh, maybe launching a new product in December. So that's going to be really exciting. And uh, I think people are really going to like it. Nice. Ju, thank you so much for coming on the D2C podcast. I know you're active on Twitter. Would, can we share your handle at Ju, at Ju Rayu? Yep. Yeah. And if you want to know more about Hero Cosmetics, you can go to herocosmetics.com. Yep. Nice. Well, thanks again. This is uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for um, having me. I look forward to kind of following your journey. Um, as you get more comfortable with balling out with your Larry's bank account. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I will be sure to uh, share more about my post-exit life. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.